story. Tonight we're going to focus specifically on the Bible and what it is and why we have it and what do we do with it. So to recap just for us, if you've not been here the last few weeks, we've been going through uh, the Great Commission, which is on the top of your all's paper, and it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so what we first said the first week was that Jesus is what? Greater than everything. And because Jesus is greater than everything, we, we went through all of the story of Scripture, how all the story points to him about all the great things that he did. We kind of just did a brief summary about him. But because of that, we now believe that the message of Jesus is for everyone. And because we believe that the message... Stop getting ahead of me. I wish Katie were here. No offense. Stop getting ahead of me. Because the message of Jesus... You're doing a fine job. You're a great man. I appreciate you, my friend. Sorry. lost my lost my cool... He's crying. I'll come to Qdoba. No, I won't. I'll be back. I'll come in a couple weeks. The message of Jesus for everyone, what we said about that was that if we truly believe, if you and I are truly Christians, if we truly believe that Jesus is greater, that Jesus is for everyone, then our lives and the way we interact with one another should start changing in how we approach people, how we treat people, how we communicate with one another, and that if we truly believe that that to be true, we should invite as many people as possible to hear that story. And then last week, now you can, Joe, we did about baptism. We said that baptism tells the world that we belong to who? That the entire purpose of our baptism is not for salvation. It's because of salvation that we go to the water to tell the world that we belong to him and we unite with him. Tonight, we're going to look at the last part of the Great Commission, which it says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. What in the world did Jesus want us to teach people? Any thoughts? What did, te- what did Jesus want us to teach people? Just math, basic life skills, the gospel, the message about him. The same message that we said was for everyone, the same Jesus that is greater than everything. That's what he wants us to teach. But here's what I want you guys to hear tonight. The overarching theme for tonight is that Scripture is all about Jesus. Scripture is not about you. I know some of you guys are confused about science and think that the world revolves around you, but it doesn't. Y'all, did I just like crush some of y'all's dreams? The world does not revolve around you. Do you guys realize that some of you guys are 17, 35, 47, whatever? That's just now. That we've been, like this world has been around for a lot longer than David Bright has. So scripture is not about David Bright. Hey, I didn't say your age, so you're good. Yes, David, there are people older than here than you, but I just chose you. Scripture is not about you. So, some people, and this is where we get, this is what I want to talk about tonight, because some people go to Scripture thinking that they're going to find all of their life's answer or questions and answers. They'll want to know, what am I supposed to do with my life? Go to Scripture. What am I supposed to do for my next job? Go to Scripture. What am I supposed to do for my job, for my wedding, for all this stuff? Go to Scripture. And if you go into it, the mindset of solving all my problems, guess what? You're never going to find answers because who is it not about? It is not about, it is about, well, thanks, for Dave. You said me specifically. That hurts. It is not about you. And I asked you guys this earlier, what kind of things confuse you about the Bible? And you guys gave a lot of great answers from dinosaurs to translations to languages to, I don't know, I heard some other funny one. What was the other funny one I heard? 
Jesus, that's it, Jesus teenagers, to Revelation. There's a lot of confusing stuff. I have been, I have taken classes in God, like the Bible. I've taken biblical studies classes, and there's still things that to this day will always confuse me. When I'm 95, I will still be confused by some stuff in Scripture if I make it that long. I don't know. Maybe. I go to Qdoba once a week. I probably won't make it that long. No offense. But there's so much confusion in the Bible, so what I wanted to do tonight is spend time focusing on the Bible. So to give you a better idea, because some of you guys grew up reading King James. Some of you do New King James. Some of you guys do NIV. Some of you do ESV. Some of you do The Message. I brought all my Bibles. I'm missing one, but I got all my Bibles here. This is from birth to now. And technically this is Katie's, but she and I have the exact same one, so I brought hers. I can't find mine. This is the Beginner's Bible. Anyone else have the Beginner's Bible growing up? Anybody? Yeah? Okay, a few of you. It is, look at that. Some awful illustrations and pictures that go all throughout Scripture. This is about Goliath. He's, that's too short to be Goliath. There he is. David versus Goliath. Look at that big man, right? This is my very first Bible. My mom and dad would read it to me at night. I would take this to Sunday school and be all kinds of confused because what the teacher was telling me was not in the same format because there's no numbers, there's no chapters. It's just story, right? Then when I was baptized, I told my mom and dad I wanted a new adult grown-up Bible. So eight years old, ten years, I think it was ten years old when I got this. This is a parallel Bible. Anybody know what that means? It has two translations in the same one. It's the NIV, the New International Version, and the Message. The Message is a little bit different because it kind of breaks it down into a more modern language. But growing up reading this, there was some confusion because NIV is on one side, which I learned growing up how to quote the NIV. So if you ever ask me to quote scripture, I'm going to quote from the NIV just because that's what I'm familiar with. But on the other side, you get the Message. It is very difficult to find where you are at in the Message because there's no verse numbers. It groups it together by a paragraph and sometimes puts like one through four instead of doing one, two, three, four. And I got really confused by that growing up, but it's cool. Then when I got to college, I wanted to know more about the Bible. I wanted to study more. So I went to, uh, there's a store in, uh, what's that, what's the, um, not Life, yeah, it was not Lifeway. I can't remember the other one. There's a store in Huntington. There's a Bible store. I guess it was Lifeway, a publishing company. And I got an NIV Life Application Study Bible. Can I tell you something that still hurts me to this day? I grew up, and some of you guys may have grown up this way. I'm sure, Joe, you probably did too. We believe, like, there's a lot of just, like, weight to this book. Like, there's just a lot of importance in it, so you just treat it wholly. You don't put anything on it. Did you grow up like that, Joe? No? You did? Don't, like, you treat the whole book itself with, like, with respect. You don't set things on it. You don't put your cup on it and, like, a little milk ring, whatever. You don't do anything to make sure. This is the very first Bible I ever wrote in by accident. Philippians chapter 1, I will never forget this. I'm sitting in my apartment in Huntington, Philippians chapter 2, when all of a sudden, while I'm studying, my pen slipped. I got this little tiny line. I cried for a few minutes because I thought I was going to hell. (laughs) Because I thought this book was that important in my life that I thought, you know, this is going to be bad. Next thing you know it, there's like highlights everywhere. This is the book I started studying the most. Now, the one I'm missing, because how difficult is this thing to carry around with you? I mean, this is like 10 pounds. This is nuts, right? So I went and got a pocket-sized Bible of the NIV. It's black and gray. I bought it, and that was the very first Bible I ever read from cover to cover. 
I was so excited about it. I read it in 90 days. Because there was a Bible plan out called the B90. Remember P90X, the workout regiment? There was B90X, how to read the Bible in 90 days. You think like the Bible in one year plan that we started back in January where five chapters a day is nuts? Yeah, talk about 15 chapters. You spend like 45 minutes to an hour reading it. But I did it in 90 days. I didn't comprehend a lot, but I did it in 90 days. But then I lost that Bible. No idea where it went. So I thought, I'm going to get another one. The pocket size is a little kind of hard to read after a while. Like when you're in the dark and like worship when you got the lights kind of down, you're like trying to see it. So I wanted to get a new one. So I got this one. It's another NIV. It's got my name on it. I thought that was kind of cool. And then this was my favorite one to read. And if I ever just sit down and read my Bible, this is the one I go to. I preached with it for a long time. Then I got hired at my first church. When I was hired at my very first church, my dad says, now that you're in ministry, I want to give you a a Bible that's very helpful to people in ministry. This is called the Serendipity Bible. That means nothing to a lot of you. But if throw me out, someone throw out a scripture. Anything. John 3.16. I knew one person, because this is America, would throw John 3.16 out there. Tebow, baby. If you go to John 3.16, yeah. It basically gives you an entire lesson on the spot if you ever get in a jam and like have to do something the last second, if you ever get put into something like, it has stuff for weddings, it has stuff for funerals, it has stuff for baby dedications, for all kinds of stuff. It has icebreaker questions, and there's times where I'm just like, I have no idea what to ask. And some of you adults know this, small group questions, not my thing. I have no idea what to ask for you guys or have you guys ask them. But sometimes I go to this Bible to do that. And my dad wrote something in there for me. He wrote his favorite scripture about ministry. It says, Scott, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. I love that. It means a lot to me to have that Bible. Then I go to Passion, and some of you guys who are going this year are excited. Some of you guys who went in previous years, it's pretty cool, amazing event. Right before Passion 2017, they were going to the Georgia Dome where 70,000 people were going to be there. And they had just announced that Louis Giglio, Robbie Zacharias, John Piper, all those big-name Christian pastors got together, took the NIV, and wrote specific commentary for it. And they called it the Jesus Bible, which makes no sense. It's not a new translation. It's just the NIV. But it talks about how everything in this book points to Jesus. And we go to the Passion Conference, again, 70,000 people, and all of a sudden Louis Giglio gets up there. He's like, hey, so we got the Passion Bible. You can go out there and pay for it for 45 bucks. He goes, but how many of you guys up in row 343 of section 5 won a Bible? And they all went nuts. He goes, great, you're getting one. So everyone up in that little section of like 15 people got a free Bible. And we're all like, you guys suck. I want one. The next morning, or excuse me, not the next morning, but right after the end of that worship service, Louis Giglio comes back out. He goes, I can tell you guys are mad. He goes, during worship, during my teaching, I could tell you guys are mad because you guys are really jealous of the people up in that section. You guys hate them right now, don't you? And they're, they're still upset and they're going, oh, we got a Bible, y'all don't. And he goes, it's okay, all 70,000 of you are going to get a free one. So we got a free Bible, and on the very back it says 2017 Passion Dome Edition. That's really cool. I absolutely love this. This one sits on my nightstand. I read it every single night. Katie and I read it together. I love this one. March 28th, 2017. 15. Anybody know what that day is? Our wedding anniversary. March 20, 2015, we decided instead of getting a guest book, we got a family Bible, a 
Adults, how many of you, like any adults have family Bibles? Like, remember that being a big thing? Yeah, we, I'll be honest with you, we've read this once. But we got this Bible. Instead of a guest book, we wanted people to go through this and highlight, take notes, mark their favorite sections of Scripture and why. And so if I just like open up anywhere, Mike and Susie Pierce, who live in Ritchie County now in Virginia, says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor present, nor the future, blah, 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 can ever separate from the love of God. That meant a lot to them. And because it meant a lot to that, them, and now means a lot to us. It's pretty cool. It sits in t- underneath of our TV in the drawer. Again, we've read it once. Katie's like, you should take that, even if we don't read it. Then, last year for Christmas, Pastor Tony got, I think, it was, I think Tony gave it me this, maybe it was two years ago for Christmas, this little pocket Bible, the Holman Christian Standard version. Some of you guys have started switching, like the Durham's now read the Holman Christian Standard version. It's a great Bible. I love it because Tony gave it to me. I pick this up from time to time and just read through that one. But when I got employed here at church, I wanted to switch because if you never notice, all three pastors preach from the exact same translation. I didn't want to be that guy who did a different one. So I bought English Standard Version. This is the Bible that I will never write in because when you're trying to preach and there's notes all throughout your Bible, there's underlines, highlighter, you can't read it. And sometimes I can't read my own notes, let alone a bunch of stuff in the margins. So I got a new Bible, that's the one I'll always preach with, right? Then the last one is the one that you guys have on your tables. Last year, uh, every time Facebook, Instagram, whatever, if any Christian publishing company says, free book, I'm like, <laughs> heck yeah, sign up. And I get a lot of spam calls, but I get a lot of free stuff too. And so a year ago, there was a thing from Crossway, which is a publishing company, they offered a free pastor's bundle. Like, I don't know what that is. They had 15 things in I'm like, eh, yes. Address, email, got it. It had this Bible in it. It had those of you who go to Sunday morning middle school, they had a new city catechism that they go through on Sunday morning. That was in there. A bunch of other stuff, some really bad kind of stupid books, but whatever. Then it had this Bible, which I've used a lot when I'm in a jam and don't have one because it's, it's nice. It's a good cover. It's solid. And then I started thinking back through this. I love all these Bibles. <clears throat> and I wanted you guys, because if you ever notice, the ones that we've used up here are like falling apart. I don't know if you ever noticed. Like I've seen people pick them up and pages fall out. And I wanted you guys to better understand what we talk about, better understand what we're going through. So it's awesome that our, all of, some of our adult care groups, some adults who are not in this room, some who are in other parts of our church, got together and they wanted you guys to have these Bibles. And so if you ever just... You don't know who to thank, but just be very thankful that you guys have these. But here's what I want you guys to know. All these ones, I love these ones. I don't have a favorite. I, I can pick either one of them up. And the, one of the biggest questions with the Bible is what translation are you supposed to use? I know someone in this room who grew up, what translation were you supposed to use? The King James Bible. I've gone to churches where the sign says King James only. I've gone to signs, I've seen, I've seen churches where signs say we do other translations, like it literally says on their sign. Which translation do you think you're supposed to use? It doesn't matter. The Bible you're supposed to read is the one you're actually going to open and read. It doesn't matter what translation, it doesn't matter which one. If you're going to read it, that's the one you're supposed to read. But we're going to talk about this Bible and why it is important tonight. Scripture is all about Jesus. That's what we're supposed to teach. But one of the questions that I know you guys have, and those of you who already submitted questions for next week, we're going to bring that up again here in a little bit, 
Some of you guys asked this book how it all came together. Let me break this down this way. How many of you guys saw Avengers Endgame? Right? 21 movies finishing in an epic $3 billion, right? Why is it that you guys are completely okay with 21 people telling a story that is part of one big story, but yet it's so confusing to talk about how multiple people wrote stories that are part of one big story? You ever think about this? You guys spent eight, ten, twelve dollars, me included, three times, thirty-six dollars, and I had the DVD, so fifty bucks, right? For twenty-one movies, all telling one big story with small stories, and yet so often we have a hard time wrapping our mind around the fact that multiple people wrote letters, wrote poems, wrote songs that were put together into a book that's about one big story. It's interesting, isn't it? It's easy to wrap our minds around because it's 21 movies in, you know, 10 years, but 40 writers, roughly, 2,000 years of history, you know, whatever. Kevin Feige compared to God, I don't know. It's just beside the point. Kevin Feige helped direct Marvel, if you didn't know that. So here's what I want. Here's, I'm going to give you Bible history. Some of you guys are like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be so boring. But you guys need to know how this came together. Ready? You don't realize how much this book has been through. Here, a quick fact. This book, every single year, was the number one seller. To this day, it's still the number one seller. But no company puts this in their number one seller's list anymore. Because every single year, it was the number one seller, and no other books were surpassing it. So they removed them, and now you get stuff like The Notebook. Or whatever else Nicholas Sparks has out there. Right? So we have all this confusion about what this book is. We have all this hype about it. So what has this book been through? Real quick, this book, this Bible, anybody know how many, chap- or how many books are in this Bible? There are 66 books in this Bible. There are 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. It is split into two different parts. The Old Testament, New Testament. This isn't in your notes. But Old Testament, New Testament, basically what that means is Old Covenant, New Covenant, how Israel came to be, Jesus. But I just told you that all Scripture is about who? It's all about Jesus, all right? This is made up of 66 books written by, listen to this, how many authors do you think wrote this book? 40? I put 40, but yeah, it's 41. 41 people wrote this book. I didn't put that in there? All right. 41 people, yeah, they didn't. Take it back. Take it back. He's doing good. That was my fault. This was written by 41 authors, but guess what? 41 authors, but it was inspired by who? The Holy Spirit. Now, think about it this way. I, I hate that I'm even doing this. 21 Marvel movies, right? 21 Marvel movies. That's, I know there are some that did multiple movies, but think. Multiple directors, right? We had people like John Favreau directing the Iron Man movies. We had people, I can't remember the guy's name, that did, huh? Joss Whedon doing the Avengers movies. The Russo brothers, right? Did they have the ability to make their own specific movie? 
Did they still have to report to somebody? Yeah, they're still an overarching person in charge, guiding them, directing them. That's, that's a terrible illustration, but I'm going to stick with it. Because there are 66 books written by 41 people, but all inspired by one spirit. It's basically like, hey, here's the story. Here's a story I want you to present. Lindsay Elijah, if you're one of the writers, here's a story. You're writing it. I want you to put your own spin on it. I want you to put your own character into it, your own personality. That's why when you get to the four Gospels, there are four different stories. We're all talking about the exact same thing, but different perspective, right? All under one Holy Spirit. Some of these authors were fishermen. Some were tax collectors. Some of them were priests. Some of them were military generals. Some of them were kings. Some of them were farmers. But here's the thing. Have they always had this book? No. If you think about this, we're going to get to this in a second. But when Jesus left, Jesus didn't go. Here you go. He didn't have this. And actually, for the first few hundred years, this book did not exist after Jesus left. We're going to walk through that. So just to start off, in 1400, 1400 B.C., 1400, so thousands of years ago, the very first time anybody started writing down Scripture. A man named Moses. You all know Moses, right? Moses wrote, to believe, the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. The ones that you guys have a hard time ever getting through. Like when you do like the whole Bible in your plan, you're like, dude, Leviticus is the worst. It's kicking my butt. I'm done, right? He wrote the first five. But then, over the next 1,500 years, nearly 2,000 years of history... Forty other people got together and started writing these books that we have now. They wrote letters of prophecy. They wrote poems. They wrote history, different instruction. Some of them were firsthand accounts of stuff that they saw. And then in 90 AD, so I'm, I'm not a math person, 90 AD, 1900-something years ago, right? We'll go with that. 1900-something years ago, a council got together of Christians they got together, they had all these different writings of the Old Testament. They had different books like the letter of Isaiah, they had the letter of Jeremiah, the different letters and different stories that they had. And they're like, we got to get all this together. So they met together and they finalized 39 books. They said, this is the Old Testament, 39 books right here. They finalized that and that's how we got the Old Testament. That's 90 AD, okay? They're different. They had a criteria for it. They had to be historically accurate. It had to be written by a great hero of the faith, and it couldn't be in conflict with another writing. Then, let's fast forward 160 years. So that was 90 AD. Now we're in 250 AD. Who knows what persecution means? Anybody? What's persecution? Suffering. Punishment for the sake of something that you believe in. Right? In 250 AD, so 200-some years after Jesus left, the Christians who have been growing, they're getting huge, they're all over the place. They start getting persecuted. And what's thought to be the end of the Christian church actually became the explosion of the Christian church. And then finally in 303, 303, Rome, the people that they were under, the Roman government, ordered that every single Christian writing, every single Christian letter, anything that was written in the name of Christ had to be thrown out, had to be destroyed. They thought they were going to win. However, again, it made it grow faster. To the point in 367 A.D., there were so many letters, so many writings of Jesus, all of his followers, that another council got together, 
to determine which letters. We already have 39 Old Testament. They're like, hey, we got all these different writings over here. They kind of make sense that they go together. So they put together 27 letters that form the New Testament, 367 A.D., 1,700, 1,600 years ago. They formed the New Testament. Now they got 66 books. Now some of you guys are going, yeah, but I've heard that other parts of the Christian church have more. That's true. To this day, it is still being debated if some should be, some should not be in the Bible. We believe that this Bible, the 66 that are in there, are supposed to be in there. My, one of my favorite books in the Bible is the book of James. To this day, some people believe that book should not be in there because it kind of sounds like it contradicts other books. There's another book that I know the women's ministry, I think, just used recently, Esther. Or you were, yeah, the book of Esther at one point was thought should not be in Scripture. Do you want to know why? What? What would you say, David? No, but not because it was a woman. They were pretty prejudiced back then, sexist, but no. The book of Esther never once mentions God. Never mentions God. But yet they said it should be in there. Then, let's fast forward even further. You all know in your history the point of the Dark Ages. You all remember hearing about that in history class. We had the Dark Ages. During the Dark Ages, people were encouraged not to learn. People were encouraged not to read because it wasn't readily available. And that became pretty awful. But during that time, a bunch of monks, you know those guys that have like the weird haircuts and the little brown sackcloth bag thing that they wear when they go live in seclusion, they never come out in daylight, they're kind of pasty and wet. You know what I'm talking about? Those monks... They got together in seclusion, these different villages they lived in, and they would write down word for word the scriptures. And at the end of every single day, when they finished one page, just one page, they would count every single letter on that page to make sure it was accurate. If they were one, two, three numbers off, the next day they'd do that entire page again. Just to guarantee there was multiple copies of the exact same letter, same page, same paper out in circulation. That's what they did. It got a lot easier then towards the 1300s. After the Dark Ages, history people, what came after the Dark Ages? Starts with an R, ends with Renaissance. The Renaissance era came in the 1300s, and people started wanting to study more about science. They want to study more about history. They want to study more about theology. And so people, I did not say Siri. Siri started asking me questions, sorry. But the problem was they were so interested in Scripture. Do you know what the, the issue was? All of Scripture at that point was in one language. You said it, Hudson. It was in Latin. How many of you guys speak Latin? Do you really? I, you guys are awesome. That's awesome. I only know pig Latin. Um, at that point, in the 1300s, all of Scripture was in Latin. But what was the problem? What did Jesus not speak? No, he spoke Aramaic. The first century writers were translating the words of Jesus into Greek. The Old Testament was Hebrew, and now all of a sudden it's in Latin. Guess who the only people in that era who could read Latin were? Priests. So the only person that could understand Scripture was the priest. So imagine you guys want to know more about the Bible, but it's in a language that I only understand. And so I'm the only one that can communicate it. What does that do for you guys? Not a lot. What does that do for me? It builds me up quite a bit. It was only in the language that the English understood, or the, the priest understood. Then, 
Contrary to popular belief, it was in the 1600s, it was 1357, roughly, a man named John Wycliffe translated the very first English Bible. It wasn't 1600 King James, it was 1300s. He translated the very first King or English Bible from Latin to English. The problem was, how do you get the word out to everybody? Do you, you realize how long it takes to translate a page, let alone 66 books, thousands of pages, from a language to another language? What happened in the 1400s? What was one of the biggest inventions ever in the 1400s? The printing press. Who did the printing press? There you go. My man, Gutenberg. Yes, he did. In 1450, Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press. He joined forces with some of these other guys. They wanted to get the Bible out in different languages. He took, it took him five years. You guys remember how the printing press worked? He had to get each letter, each thing in a certain order. It took him five years to get everything in the right order to print the very first hard copy of the Bible. But it was also still in Latin. Everybody wanted to have a copy by this point. The man was so great that a man named William Tyndale got together. He started making copies of the physical English Bible, and guess what happened to him? He got burnt at the stake. The church, the people he was writing the Bible for, thought he was a heretic or a moron, better way. They burned him at the stake because you don't take the, you don't take the Latin language and translate it to English. This is only for the priests. It's not for you guys. They burned him at the stake. Does anybody know what that means? They tied him to a post, and they set the dude on fire. They burned him at the stake because of this. All because he translated into a language for everyone else to understand. Then another man named Miles, or Miles Coverdale finished it. We had the very first English Bible. Then one of my favorite people, and this is very helpful, in 1565, or six, yeah, 1565, so now we're 1,500 years after Jesus, a people in Switzerland, I never knew Switzerland was good for anything, but apparently they were great for this. They got together, took Scripture, and put Scripture numbers in it. Jesus didn't go, in verse 18, all authority on heaven and earth is given to me. Verse 19, go therefore. No, he didn't do that. Switzerland, you can thank Switzerland for that. They got all the Scripture numbers in there, all the references in there for you. That's pretty awesome. Then 1615, the people who think this is the only word of God, the King James Bible came. 1600 years after Jesus, 200 years after the first English Bible is out, they give you the King James Bible, and we'll talk more about that at a different time. But did you guys know, to this day, people are still trying to translate the Bible? In English, how many different translations are there? You want to take a guess? 20. There are 20. I have four up here. There are 20 different, different translations today. No wonder there's confusion, right? There's 20 different translations today. And everybody still wants to find the best translation. Most of you guys, if you have your phone, you probably have the YouVersion Bible app, right? Because of that Bible app, thousands of translations have been created. That Bible app was created by Craig Rochelle and his church, Life Church, down in Oklahoma. Their goal was to end Bible poverty. You're like, what does that even mean? Because there are people to this day who still don't have the Bible in their own language. They want to fix that. And as of right now, they're on trajectory to have the entire world 
every single language represented on the YouVersion Bible app by 2035. And you're thinking, okay, not everyone has a phone. No, but you know what that does do? Me, if I'm a missionary, I can go into the Zulu lands of South Africa and go, hey, I don't speak Zulu, and you clearly know that because you don't understand me right now, but I got the Bible, Zulu, here you go. And now they, here they are reading the Bible in their very own language. Now, some of you guys are going, great history lesson, I don't really care. You said earlier, Scripture's all about Jesus. All I want to do to start off with that is to say, look how the Bible's come from. We're going to talk about more of this next week when I answer some of your all's questions. There are more historical documents proving the accuracy of these historical documents than any other document in, in eternity, like in history. You all realize that? I'm not saying Siri. Sorry. History. History. What can I help you with? Yeah, thank you. There are more documents proving this book accurate than any other document in the world. They believe, hear me out, because some people say, how can this be accurate? It's gone through 1,500 years of history. They believe, because of the documents that we now have, it is 99% authentic to what it was when it started. 99%. And you guys go, well, what about that 1%? 99%, that's pretty dang good for 1,500 years of history, right? 2,000 years of history. How many of you guys have ever played the game Telephone? Right? So if I said something to Brenda... And all, if I said Seth Howard is the best Howard, right? I know, I'm sorry, I'm putting you on the spot. If I said it to her, when it went all the way around the room, and George was like, no, Brett Howard's the best Howard. Now, is that what I said? No. How many people do I have in this room to prove that's not what I said? Quite a bit of people. Right? You guys realize when Scripture started getting written down, when the Bible started coming together, it wasn't just one guy going, uh, in the beginning, Jesus or God did this, and then this, and then this. Oh, we should put this guy named Moses in there. That's cool. It wasn't just one guy. Word of mouth was everywhere. People started doing this by oral tradition. They started passing down all these stories. And all of a sudden, word of mouth starts going wild. Then they started having written words. They started having the text in front of them. There's no way it could have been inaccurate. There's no way. If there, sometimes you read your Bible, if like you go to, I think it's Mark 16, I believe. I'm not 100% on that. But if you go to the book of Mark, sometimes you'll see where it says some translations or some early copies do not have this. That's because some of them, it's like, well, some of them do, some of them don't. We'll put it in here. My Bible actually takes it out. Interesting. But it's all what they're trying to do is prove what it all is. Here's what I want you to do. Take this Bible that you have. I'm going to show you how all this is about Jesus, okay? Open it up to the table of contents. Table of contents. That should be the easiest thing to find in this Bible. If you need help finding the table of contents, I can't tell you to go to the table of contents to find it, but it's in the very beginning. Let's, Let's run through this, okay? I'm going to run through how all this, these 66 books, are all about who? And not about who? Us. All right. Very first book, Genesis, Adam and Eve, created to be in God's image. All of a sudden, generations start filling the earth. People are spreading everywhere. Then a man named Noah came, right? You all know the story about Noah. He built an ark, and after the, book, after the ark, they flooded the entire earth. 
and then people started doing the whole thing again. They got to spread and multiply all over again, right? Now, before I, meant, I meant to say this earlier. These 66 books, what does the word chronological mean? These books are not in chronological order. If you want a Bible that's in chronological order, there is such thing as the chronological Bible. I do not have one. Not that, not that important to me. But during Genesis, if you look down a little bit later, you see the book of Job, right? The book of Job is dated roughly around the same time as the story of Noah. So Job would actually take place towards the beginning. Job is considered one of the oldest written documents that we have in the world. Book of Job, right? All right, so after the story of Noah, after the story of Job, generations later, everyone remembers a man named Abraham. Father Abraham had many, and many sons had, I am one of them. So let's all, right arm, left arm. Anyways, Abraham came. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob and Esau. Out of Jacob came 12 kids, 12 kids. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Now we have the nation of Israel. Now we have the 12 tribes of Israel. And then the youngest brother of those 12, actually he's the 13th brother, but 13th brother's name is, anybody? His name. His name is Joseph. Joseph had the, remember the pretty color coat. He was the favorite brother. He gets sold into slavery. Now Israel, a little bit later, follows all of people, follows everybody to Egypt, where in Egypt they become what? Slaves. They become slaves. That brings us to the book of Exodus, the very next book. I'm so sorry, Paige. We get to the book of Exodus, where they are enslaved. After they are enslaved, a man named Moses comes around and says, Hey, I'm going to lead you guys out of... I know, slavery is terrible. I'm crying too. Moses leads them out of... Egypt leads them out of slavery. They go into the desert. What happens in the desert? Where, how long do they end up staying there? Forty years. In those 40 years, we get these books, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those next three books. That's when God gave man law, and God told him how to worship. God told him how to make a place for him to come and visit. My translation. Then after Moses dies, we get the story of Joshua. Joshua took people of God into the promised land place that they were supposed to go to, but they didn't. Joshua takes them there, and once they get to the promised land, they divide. Twelve tribes go up. Of the twelve tribes, they split. Ten go north, two go south. Ten go north, two go south, right? Then the book of Judges happens. Judges are people that God put in place to be in charge of the people. These are the people I want in charge. It's like me appointing Ella, me appointing Eli. You guys are now in charge of this youth ministry. You guys are my judges. All of the rest of you all got to report to them, right? And they're all like, hey, no, I don't want to judge. Everyone else has a king. We want Dave to be our king, which sounds like a great idea, right? So they go back to God, yes. Talk about you. They go back to, not David Bright, I want Dave Medley. It's David and Dave, right? They go to God and say, hey, God, these judges are great and all. Yeah, Samson was a great dude. Gibeon was a great dude. Deborah was pretty awesome, but we want a king. So they go to God and say, give me a king. So God's like, all right, I don't really want you to have a king, but here you go. He gave him King Saul. Let's be honest, King Saul kind of sucked. He was kind of the worst. 
All this starts taking place, and they all get to war with the Philistines. And out of the war of the Philistines, we hear the story about David and Goliath. David comes out, the little farmer boy, kills a giant, and everyone's like, hey, I want David to be our king. So God, who had already appointed him king, makes him king. And then all of a sudden, Solomon comes out. David wrote, if you guys remember, David wrote a lot of the Psalms. Uh, and then, excuse me, Solomon wrote uh, Proverbs. He wrote Ecclesiastes. He wrote Song of Solomon, right? But during this time of all these kings, if you go to the book of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Chronicles, 1 and 2 Kings, you'll hear the story about all these kings. And it literally goes like this. Good king, bad king. Good king, bad king. Good king, bad king. Good king, bad It's a lot of kings. You guys who struggle getting through Leviticus, when I get to, when I, every time I get to 1 Chronicles, I literally hit my head off my desk. Because 1 Chronicles is the, is the history of the kings from one perspective, the same day in the reading plan, you read 1 Kings, which is the same story, but from the other perspective. One's from the north, one's from the south. You're like, why are you telling me the exact same story? The exact same story took me 15 minutes to read that chapter, Now I've got to read 15 minutes in that chapter. It's the same thing. Can I, just not, can I just lie about it on the app and say, I already read it, and move on? Been there, done that. Um, being honest with you guys, right? But during all this time, the kingdom split. One goes north. It's the kingdom of Israel. The other one goes south, the kingdom of Judah. And prophets come along. Prophets are the guys who speak to people on behalf of God, right? We had guys like Isaiah, Micah, Habakkuk, my favorite, Zephaniah, and Nahum. They all go to the south. They all go to Judah. They prophesy, say, repent, repent, repent. Turn back to God. In the north, you get Jonah. Remember the man who was swallowed by a big fish? Hosea, you all know, is my favorite, one of my favorite books. Uh, and then Amos. They all go to the north. Famous Amos, yep. But then something happens in 722. The northern kingdom, ten tribes of Israel, a lot of people, is wiped off the face of the earth. The Assyrians come through, wipe them out. They're gone. The southern kingdom survives just for a little bit. And the Babylonians come through. You all know the story about Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. He did not make a giant chocolate bunny like we see in VeggieTales. It was actually a big idol. Comes through and wipes them all out. Brings all the survivors back to Babylon and says, hey, you guys are now in exile. You now have to be like Babylonians. So we get the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? But people like Daniel, Ezekiel, Obadiah, Jeremiah, who also wrote Lamentations, wrote all these books when they were all in Babylon. That's when they wrote all these books. After 50 years in Babylon, 50 years, excuse me, 70 years, 70 years in Babylon, a new Babylon's gone. The Persians, you remember the like, Prince of Persia, all those Disney movies? The Persians are now in charge. They come in, they take over. That's why if you ever read the book of Daniel, you'll have the beginning, they're in, under Babylon, Babylon control, and the end of Daniel, you have, now they're under Persian control. King Cyrus comes in, wipes out King Nebuchadnezzar. They take over. But King Cyrus looks upon Israel and says, hey, you guys can go back to your city. Just go. So they go back, and that's where you get the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. When they go back and rebuild the city, they rebuild the temple, they rebuild the wall. And at that time, we get books like Haggai, Zechariah, Joel, who all prophesied during that time. But some Jews did not go back to Israel. Some stayed in Babylon, or excuse me, in Persia. That's where we read the book Esther. If you ever read the, if you go home and read the book of Esther, it's a great book about a woman who was growing up as a Jewish girl in Persia. Fantastic book. 
And then, in your table of contents, what is the very last book of the Old Testament? Old Testament. Malachi. After the book of Malachi, there is 450 years of nothing. He is the last prophet. It just stops. There's no writing. There's nothing. During that 450 years, for you history buffs, how many of you guys know the great Greek leader, Alexander the Great? Right? Alexander the Great comes in and wipes pretty much everybody out, and Greece owns everything. Everything that the known world has, Greece is in charge. It didn't last very long because another nation came in, Egypt and Assyria. They came in 323 B.C. That didn't last very long because in 63 B.C., the Roman government came in and wiped everybody out. They own everything. And that's when Jesus comes on the scene, right? And that's when the New Testament starts. So when you walk down through the New Testament, it can get confusing. Uh, there's a guy I met one time who said to my brother, I really like this Jesus character. He dies four times and comes back four times. Because he's reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as four different stories about four different people, all who happen to be named Jesus and thought they were the same person dying over and over again and coming back over and over and over again, right? All four stories, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, are people who witnessed or were close to the people who did witness Jesus. Matthew and John wrote, walked around with him. They were his disciples. Luke was a doctor that we talked about earlier. There's some very much, there's a lot of differences in those books. Then you get the book of Acts. Acts is all about the church coming to being, and all of a sudden they're growing, right? Real quick, Scott's theological point of the day. Don't call this the Acts of the Apostles. That's usually what people refer to it as. It's the Acts of the Holy Spirit, is my opinion. The apostles did nothing. The Holy Spirit did everything. Just throwing that out there for your thought. After that, book of Acts, we see Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon. All those books written by the Apostle Paul. All during the same time as Acts. He's writing these as letters of encouragement. It was like, if I go to Parkersburg, I plant the church. I find somebody to be the leader of Parkersburg. I say, here, I leave. You're in charge. I leave. 20 years later, I write a letter back to the church of Parkersburg. Hey, how you guys doing? I remember how good it used to be. I hear that you're not doing so well. Here's my encouragement to you. And that's how we got Paul's letters. But then all of a sudden, there's other books like Hebrews, James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Other people who witnessed Jesus or other people who were uh, acquaintances with those who did witness Jesus, right? And then everyone's favorite book that's most confusing, the very end, Revelation. Everyone's like, what the crap is Revelation? There's a dragon, and it says the great whore of Babylon. I'm really confused. What's going on in Revelation? And I told you guys back in the summer, if you guys were here, that the story about Revelation is not about what is going to happen. It's all about what's already happened in Jesus, who's already come, who's already reigning, and one day will come back again. If we understand Revelation the right way, it won't freak us out so much. And I'm like, I just ran through 66 books. Some of you guys are still confused. So I only got a couple minutes, so here we go. Very end here. Second, actually, sorry. What is this good for? Why should I read this book? It answers, I'm going to go through this real fast, so you got to keep up with me. This answers the life's five hardest questions that everybody wants to know. The first one is origin. Where did we come from? This book explains in Genesis chapter 1, we were all made in the image of God and out of and all of a sudden, out of Adam and Eve came Eli Brown. 
thousands of years later, right? You weren't there in Genesis chapter 1, I don't believe, but you came thousands of years later. It explains our origin. It also explains our identity. Who are we? It says either we are children of God or we're not, depending on what we believe in. The third thing it says, meaning, why are we here? We have purpose. Actually, the thing is what it says. We have purpose. It's like, why are we here? We actually have something to believe in. We actually have something to live for. The next one, morality. How should we live? Everybody wants to know where morals come from. We actually have something that says where our morality comes from. And the last one is our destiny. Where are we going? If we believe what this book says, there are two alternatives on where we are going in eternity. The last thing I would add that's not on there, this one, this book, compared to other religious texts, offers more hope than any other one. That we have a Savior, we have one to believe in, we have one to live for. Now, you say, that's great. Let me give you scripture to back this up. Ready? 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's on page 936. It's very much a quotable. Verse 16, ready. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what's scripture good for? It just says right here, it's good for teaching. First thing, we, because of the scripture, scripture teaches us, it reproves us, it corrects us, and trains us. What does all that mean? This scripture teaches us how to live, what to think, how to do a lot of different things. No, it does not teach you how to drive a car. As I said, it does not teach you every answer that you need to know, but it gives you every answer that you should desire. It reproves and corrects. What does that mean? When Dave Medley was raising up Gwen, he's still raising up Gwen, when Gwen started to walk, she would fall constantly, right? Now, knowing Medley, some of you guys might think that he would say, get up, you moron, do that over again, right? You're a failure at life, right? No. Did Dave, did you pick up your daughter? And do what? Keep going. To reprove and correct. It's not just God tells me all the things I shouldn't do. God also says, here's the things I shouldn't do. Here's why, and here's the things that I should that's what a great parent does. A great father would do that. He'll say, listen, I don't want you to do this. Here's the reason why I don't want you to do this. And when you get caught doing it, okay, now that you've done it, let's correct this. Now that you've fallen multiple times, let's pick you back up. Let's sit you back forward. If you ride and learn how to ride a bike, another great example. You would fall multiple times. Your mom, your dad, whoever would pick you back up, grab a hold of the seat, and guide you until you correct it and move forward again. To reprove and correct is the same thing. The last thing it does, it trains us in righteousness or teaches us in righteousness. It shows us how to live a holy life. It shows us how to live a godly life. Now we're going to jump over to Hebrews chapter 4. I'm sorry I'm going so fast, but we're out of time. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It's on page 943. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and spirit of the joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What that just says, according to this, that Scripture is alive and active. This is not showing up? It's all right. Alive and active. Just forget it. And it pierces the soul and the spirit. What does that even mean? If you open up today, if you open up a book in Philippians chapter 1, and you read something, you learn something, a year later, if you open up the exact same book, the exact same Philippians chapter 1, you read it, is it possible that you're going to get something different out of it? Why? You've grown up, 
your circumstances have changed, your season of life has changed. The scripture speaks to us in the season that we are in. Because it's alive and active means that it's always moving, it is always changing, it is always correcting us, no matter what stage of life you are in. It does not provide all your answers, but it provides everything that you need. You can always find something new. And the last scripture I have on there, you're not going to read this, but I do encourage you because it's 171 verses. Psalm 119, the longest scripture in all the Bible, is all about the Word of God. Go home tonight, read Psalm 119. Take about 15, 20 minutes. Psalm 119, 177 verses. It is all about the Word of God. And let me give you what I think about Psalm 119. Last thing I want to give you. Because everybody wants to know how to be blessed in life. Everybody wants to know how to have a great life. Psalm 119 gives us an idea. The key to a blessed life is for the word of God to be your soul's delight. That's what Psalm 119 says. Over and over and over again. At Christmas this year, Katie wanted to grow more in her understanding of scripture. She has her little pink ESV Bible or NIV Bible that is literally falling apart. It's being held together by duct tape and scotch tape. It's got so much writing in it, you can't read it anymore. So I got her for Christmas an ESV study Bible. In that opening page, I wrote, To my bride, may this book be your soul's delight. Because in this book is everything that you guys need for a life of godliness, for a life of holiness, everything that you need to know. Does this answer where all the dinosaurs are? No. Does this answer where did Adam and Eve have belly buttons or not? No. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Not in here. But everything that we need is in there. Listen, as we wrap up, everybody wants to know what God says, right? Everybody wants to know, what's God's will for my life? What does God want from me? You will never, you will never know what God wants for you if you do not spend time to understand what God says. If you don't spend time in this book, not this one specifically, your Bible, if you don't spend time in this, you will never know what God says. If you don't know what God says, you'll never know who Jesus really is. You'll never know who you really are. You'll never know what's really down the road for you. You need to make this your soul's delight. This book speaks not about just basic instructions before leaving earth. That's an acronym that Christians have created. This is all about life-giving application and how we can live a godly life. I'm going to pray, and I have a quick, couple of quick announcements, and then we are done tonight, okay? Father God, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to spend time in your word. Thank you for this great book, the way that you have revealed yourself to us. This is not a book that we worship, but this is a book that we cling to. We know that there are people around the world who are dying because they own this book. And there's so many of us who take it for granted that we have it on our phone. God, may this book be our soul's delight. And may all that we do bring glory and honor to you. Sons, let me pray. Amen.